Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Writer Network. My guest today is Bathsheba Demuth. She's a writer and environmental historian specializing in the lands and seas of the Russian North American Arctic. Her interest in northern places and cultures began when she was 18 and moved to the village of Old Crow in the Yukon, where she trained huskies for several years. From the archive to the dog sled, she is interested in how the histories of people, ideas, and ecologies intersect. In addition to a prize-winning book, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, which is a fabulous book, by the way, her writing has appeared in publications from the American Historical Review to The New Yorker and The Best American Science and Nature Writing. She is currently the Dean's Associate Professor of History and Environment and Society at Brown University. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much, Derek. It's a real pleasure to be here. So uh, for, for anybody who doesn't know, which is probably almost everybody, what is The Floating Coast? So the title of this book uh, comes from the part of the world where it's set, which is this region where Russia and North America almost meet um, up at the end of the North Pacific, basically. And it's called Floating Coast because in the in the winter, the sea ice that forms across this part of the world kind of creates a, a natural um, bridge between the two continents, right? It sort of recreates the, the Bering Land Bridge of 10,000 years ago. Um, but it's one that's suspended over water because the sea ice is floating on the still liquid parts of the ocean. So there's this kind of coast that floats. Um, but to me, it's also partly metaphorical because it's a book that's about um, the the kinds of ideas that people have floated to this part of the world and tried to pin down and often with varying results, put it that way. So let's, um, can you, can you tell us what, I don't want to just say the Bering Strait. See, if, it would be easy if you had just written a book on the Bering Strait because I could say, what was the Bering Strait like? But this book is actually about a much broader, it's not just one biome, but it's several biomes that um, that f- sort of float back and forth. I mean, that, that was just a, a great part of it, too, the relationship between what happens on land and what happens in the sea. Be that as it may, can you can you tell us a little bit about what the region was like prior to conquest, especially ecologically, but also socially? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so. One way to think about this part of the world, um, if you live in a in a temperate region, as the majority of human beings do, we live in the temperate in the tropics, and um, there's a, a smaller number of people live up in the far north. Is that the the oceans in this part of the world are extraordinarily productive in biological terms? They're really rich ecosystems, um, huge diversity of species. Um, and when an ecologist says rich, what they mean is they're able to take a lot of sunlight and fix it into carbon through photosynthesis. And this happens in the ocean with diatoms and algae and other kind of very small plant life that in turn feeds this kind of enormously, amazingly rich ecosystem all the way up to bowhead whales. Um, and some of that richness kind of spreads out into coastal animals like walruses or runs up the rivers in the case of salmon. But it's an ecosystem that has a lot less ability to fix uh, carbon through photosynthesis when you get up on land. So um, the the terrestrial ecosystems around the Bering Strait are somewhat less productive than a terrestrial one. And that gives it a very kind of interesting geography of energy, these different biomes, the sea, the shoreline, um, what's up on the tundra, that historically has really shaped the way that people um, have learned to live in this place. Um, and there's an extremely long history of human habitation here going back um, sort of tens of thousands of years. Um, on the Russian side, or what is now the Russian side, uh, there are two kind of primary indigenous peoples, the Chukchi, who live mostly inland, but a little bit on the coast, and Yupik people who primarily live on the coast. And then over on what we now call Alaska, uh, you have Yupik people and Inupiaq. Um, and these groups of folks figured out how to live within this energy geography, as I like to think of it, with incredibly sophisticated adaptations to hunting whales and walruses, um, to herding domestic reindeer in the case of the Chukchi. Um, and, you know, this was the source of all sorts of cultural meaning and differentiation. Um, it was often the source of politics because, um, you know, sometimes people were interested in contesting over who had access to what parts of, of the landscape. Um, 
But I think it's one thing that's important if you're used to looking at the Arctic and the subarctic from a temperate place is that this is an incredibly dynamic social and ecological region um, long before Europeans ever stumbled into it. Um, you use the phrase um, energy geography, and I love that phrase. And can you um, can you expand on that? You've you've said it a little bit. Can you expand on it a little bit more? Yes, absolutely. So I I realized when I was doing research for this book um, in truly, I think, was what sort of a eureka moment, which I don't know if historians get very many of, but I at least got this one, that what I knew about the way that ecology works in this part of the world, which is that energy, that carbon, that photosynthetic organisms are able to fix in their cells through photosynthesis, is kind of distributed unevenly across uh, this land and seascape. So there's more energy available in the oceans and less available on land. And that, that kind of gradient of how much uh, sort of energy you can get access to um, really influences the way that people live. And I'm thinking of energy here in sort of caloric terms, like where it is that you're able to find food um, is very much kind of influenced by these ecological spaces. So something I think that is, um, that is really that makes it difficult for us to sometimes makes it difficult for us to oppose uh, the destruction of wild nature is uh, declining baselines. And so we, you know, an example everybody knows is that, or at least some people know, is that at one point when you would drive somewhere, you would have to clean your windshield often because of all the insects you killed. And these days you can drive across country and not clean your in, clean your windshield because insects are getting hammered. And so given that, given that, that, or where I live is just north of the Klamath River, which is the second largest river on the west coast of the United States. Um, the river, even as late as the 1930s, was so, so full of salmon that uh, they would say the entire huge river was, quote, black and roiling with fish. And starting five or six years ago, the, the Indians along the Klamath have had to uh, not do some of their salmon ceremonies because there aren't enough fish. And so my point in saying all that, can you give us a couple stories of the fecundity of the region? You know, we hear about the passenger pigeons in the American Northeast, you know, darkening the sky for days at a time. Do you have any any stories like that of the the richness of – okay, long way – or long story short, show us how rich it was. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of shifting baselines because I think it's um, I think it's just a useful tool for people who are thinking about environmental change to kind of have in mind. Um, and to me, in the in the case of um, this part of the world between Russia and North America, there are a couple of, um, of kind of obvious examples. Um, one of which is the the kind of fate of great whale species, the the kind of really big whales like humpbacks, um, sperm whales, bowhead whales, particularly bowheads in the case of the far north, which historically have had populations in the case of bowheads of over 20,000 at least. Um, and then due to kind of commercial hunting by um, the sort of Moby Dick style tall ships of the 19th century are drawn down to probably fewer than 3,000 whales, um, really over the course of about 50 years. So an incredibly dramatic contraction, um, meaning that if you were a person who was born um, in 1900, your sense of what the sea was like, what a normal ocean was, is one where there were very few whales. Whereas if you were born in 1850, your sense was is that the ocean was absolutely alive with these creatures. Um, and you can tell a similar story about the Pacific walrus, um, which you know has a population of close to a quarter million um, as kind of a baseline historically, um, then is hunted in excess by commercial hunters in the 19th century, um, comes down to a, you know a, a really small kind of refuge of population. That population ends up expanding and then is hunted again in the 20th century by uh, the Soviet Union down to a very small kind of refuge of population and is kind of trying to, to build its way back and actually has. Um, but 
along this course, you can see these moments where if you if you didn't know historically what this sea was able to produce, you wouldn't even know what you were um, perhaps able to protect. And what uh, what has been some of the uh, one of the things you do just so beautifully in this book is to show um, interconnections between different species and how uh, one species will uh, will affect another and that will affect another and um, that uh, I'm trying to find real quick and I'm sorry if I, I I should have grabbed this before I'm trying to find a quote real okay this doesn't have to do with the ocean but I love this. It's one of my favorite passages in your book, and it's one of my favorite passages, frankly, in nature writing anywhere. I love this. In their great herds, caribou and reindeer spread like the tributaries of a river um, where the gray strands pool. They are indistinguishable at a distance from the land. It is more than an illusion. In life, as the herds paw and yank at the fodder, they churn nutrients and dead vegetation into the earth where it rots in summer. Raising the soil temperature, which is – that's the part that got me right there. In the presence of scarce warmth, seeds germinate. A grazing herd where it does not eat foliage to the quick amplifies tundra, tundra productivity. Alive, reindeer feed swarms of mosquitoes so massive – let's go to mosquitoes in a minute, but not yet. Um, reindeer feed swarms of mosquitoes so massive the insects can drain half a liter of blood in a day. In death, reindeer muscle becomes bears, eagles, foxes, lynx, people, ravens, wolverines, and wolves. The wolf pup grows and drags down a reindeer around the stripped carcass, arctic poppies bud. Rangifer migration is the tundra respiring, an oscillation of energy rather than air. So first off, that's just, A, I just have to say beautiful writing. And B, um, can you can you talk about one thing becoming another? I mean, that's like the essence of ecology, isn't it? Yes, and first of all, thank you. Um, and secondly, one of the things that I was trying to do in this book is try to take what I think is a, a kind of habit of historians, which is to single out human beings and kind of imagine that they are able to do a very particular kind of work separate from the ecologies that we live in and actually kind of put them back inside that ecological context, um, which in this case meant actually thinking about what it is that a reindeer does in the course of its life, um, and then how it is that humans interact with that, but also how it is that the tundra itself responds to having herds of reindeer grazing over it, how it is that other species depend on reindeer. Um, and to think about history, not as a series of kind of distinct events that are kind of rupturing the world all the time, but to think of history as actually the ways in which we're embedded in these series of transformations, right? We're, we're kind of constantly responding to and beholden to um, and dependent on the ways that energy moves through an ecosystem. Um, and to me, doing the research for it in a, in a case like this with the reindeer is just a sort of eye-opening moment of understanding how deeply contingent the life of a lynx or a human being is on you know, what it is that a reindeer does and its kind of work in an ecosystem. And that the reindeer is also you know, dependent and responding to what's happening um, with wolf packs or with the ways in which the, the tundra is changing because of very small, you know, alterations to the climate that have happened, you know, before the era of modern climate change. Um, so really, it's trying to kind of inject some ecological thinking into our understanding of how things change over time historically. So could you, can you like give a couple examples of what it might mean for oh like like one fairly simple example that i remember from from the region where i live is that if you take out the sea otters sea urchin populations go up and sea urchins uh eat a lot of kelp so sea otter population declining sea otter populations means declining kelp populations so what happens when you remove all of those whales, or you could say all of that energy, however you want to say it, um, from, from the region? What happens when you remove all those walruses? Do, can, you, can you talk about the cascading effects of, of 
any of that that you might want to? Yes, this is um, it's something that ecologists call a trophic cascade, which is kind of a, a fancy way of saying if you move out one piece of the, the Jenga puzzle that is an ecosystem, that you get this kind of carry-on effect. Um, and one of my favorite examples of this in the Bering Strait um, is what happens when you remove bowhead whales or other large whale species uh, from an ecosystem is that the, the actual work that a whale does in going about its daily life, um, in its surfacing and diving, kind of moving through the ocean from the, from the very top layers of the water all the way down. Um, some whales dive quite deep, like sperm whales, is that they actually essentially act like a pump. They, they move nutrients from lower in the water column up to the surface. Um, and in doing that, they actually increase the amount of uh, phosphorus and nitrogen and other nutrients that photosynthetic organisms require in order to build their cells. So if you have this kind of pump action of whales in an ecosystem, you actually get more plankton. If you get more plankton, you get more krill, which is, in the case of bowheads, their primary food source. Um, but it's also the food source for seabirds and for fish species. Um, and kind of a, a whole array of other animals in the Bering Sea ecosystem. So if you take whales out of the equation, you actually reduce the capacity for that whole ecosystem to produce energy, essentially. Um, and as, as they return, they kind of make it richer. Um, and this is true in the Bering Sea, but it's actually true globally if you think about uh, the, the kind of massive amount of this churn that whales have participated in historically. Um, so something like the, the global uh, whaling programs that took place in the 20th century, which killed something like 3 million whales worldwide, just removed all of that uh, kind of whale pump action from the oceans and therefore have almost certainly decreased the productivity of the seas in ways that we actually don't even understand, right? Um, it goes back to that that issue of shifting baselines is that we we don't know what the baseline looked like in 1700 um, or even 1900 to sort of be able to compare back. So there there are are two directions I would like to go. One of them is I would like to back up for a second and um and you talk in the book about how there are some unique features of the Bering Strait. Um, can you talk a little bit about the geography and currents and how that leads to or facilitates this sort of fecundity? And the other one is um, uh, whenever I think of bowhead whales or blue whales or any of the baleen whales, one of the things that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around is the sheer volume of krill that they eat every day. And I'm wondering if you can also, just very briefly, you know, again, blue whales, any of these, any of these whales are, are charismatic megafauna, but um, can you for a moment sing the praises of krill? Um, I, I think they get overlooked by many of us, including me, all the time. I am always happy to sing the praises of krill, um, and and honestly, somebody should write just a history of krill because um, it, it's I think more of a force in our lives than we know. Um, one of my favorite statistics about the 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 quantity of krill that's required to sort of create and sustain an ecosystem is that an adult North Pacific blue whale, so the biggest whale species on Earth, and actually the biggest animal to have ever lived eats about six tons of zooplankton per day, um, which is roughly the weight of an elephant. Um, and that's just to keep one blue whale going for one day, um, which I think gives you a sense of kind of how massively productive these ecosystems have to be. Um, and in the case of the Bering Sea, part of the reason that it's such a productive place is that the world's um, marine currents basically start in the Atlantic and move slowly kind of over the course of years and years and years out of the Atlantic uh, around uh, into the South Pacific and then north. And as they go, they're picking up nutrients, many of them coming from kind of the great rivers of the world. So um, basically this, this silt and uh, mud that is dumped into the ocean 
from river processes brings with it a lot of nitrogen and uh, phosphorus and other kind of really important nutrients for photosynthetic organisms. All of those get picked up and eventually they get sort of dropped off um, in the North Pacific decades and decades later um, and hit kind of at the edge of the Bering Sea, this shallow shelf. So you go from very deep water to slightly shallower water that causes those nutrients to bubble up toward the surface. Um, and that's part of what makes it an incredibly productive ecosystem. The second thing that really helps it is the sea ice, um, which, you know, if you read the historical accounts, you hear lots of sailors and missionaries and kind of new European observers looking at the sea ice and kind of despairing about it because it looks kind of barren, right? It's just this frozen lid that sits over the top of the ocean. But it turns out that as the sea ice um, melts every spring, that it sloths off fresh water because as it freezes in the winter, it kind of concentrates fresh water in the ice itself. And the different um, kind of salinity of that fresh water rolling off the sea ice, again, churns into the water column in ways that bring all those minerals that have been deposited in the Bering Sea up toward the surface. And this means that in the spring, you get these huge explosions of photosynthetic zooplanktons. Um, and then out of that emerges the, the krill. And I want to go back to krill for just a moment. What what are krill? What are we talking about? Are they are they like. I mean, yeah, sorry to be silly, but I mean, are they are they tiny fish? Are they tiny plants? Are they I mean, so for somebody who doesn't know anything what a krill is, what is a krill? No, it's a really good question because it, it gets sort of tossed around, particularly when people talk about whales. Um, they're actually schools of really tiny, usually pinkish crustaceans. Um, so little itty bitty shrimps, essentially. Um, but they, they congregate in these massive schools that sometimes you can actually see them from the air. They're kind of these pinkish blobs toward the surface of the water. How many how many blue whales might be in a family? So blue whales um, are a little bit more um, solitary. I mean, they'll, they'll hang out together, but they're not the most social whale species. Um, so they're often seen in groups of, you know, three, four, five, six. Um, sperm whales are extremely social. Um, so they often have larger family slash kind of uh, groupings that are often held together, actually, because they um, communicate with each other in the same dialect. Um, they have a sperm whales click to each other. Um, and it's it's that sort of way of communicating that that holds together groups. The reason I was asking is because if you have we could do bowhead whales and whatever that if you have six thousand if you eat an elephant's worth of, of if, if one blue whale eats an elephant's worth of of krill every day, like how big are these krill communities to be able to support that 6,000 every day? And then that's 6,000 tomorrow and 6,000 the, the next day. I and mean, how, how big is a krill uh, flock, um, krill uh, school, whatever, whatever word we use for a collection of krill? Yes, I think school is the word that's usually used. Um, and they are... The, the way that they kind of move through the ocean is these sort of, um, I mean, much like fish schools, these kind of undulating, kind of roundish blob-shaped um, conglomerations that swim together. Um, and they're often, you know, usually the estimate is, and these are, again, estimates, it's pretty hard to get in there and count them individually, is that there's about 20,000 to 30,000 individuals per cubic meter. Um, and the schools themselves are often 100 meters long. Um, and can be, you know, three, four, five meters deep, um, maybe even more than that, maybe 10. So th these are really substantial kind of conglomerates of, uh, of very small animals. Um, and it means that, you know, a, a group of bowhead whales, for example, can come and feed in a particular area and they'll eat a lot of the krill, but they're not going to eat all of the krill. So one last question, then I'll get off this, which is um, how, how quickly do the krill reproduce? extremely fast. Um, they're one of the species that are kind of adapted. Their, their method of survival is to produce many krill very quickly rather than the sort of human or bowhead whale model, which is to produce a very few offspring that are that are nurtured very carefully over a long period of time. Um, so if you have a sort of a healthy basis to an ecosystem where 
you know, the, the kind of photosynthetic potential is really high, um, you're not going to run out of krill because you have a lot of whales. So let's talk. Um, let's what happened to the region when. Um, OK, a, a couple things. What are some of the differences between the uh, the use of. Um, the use of whales or walruses or the use of energy by those who had lived there for 10,000 years and the new people who came in uh, with, and this is kind of tipping our hand, but with an extractive economy. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I think in the case of whales, and this is also true of walruses, that if you look at the ways that, Yupik or Nupiak or, or Chukchi communities hunt these species. It's very explicitly and with um, a lot of very carefully negotiated social rules explicitly in order to keep people alive, right? So you're not hunting walruses in order to be able to sell them in the long historical record of people eating walruses around the Bering Strait. And you're not killing um, whales in order to kind of use them as commodity sources um, for a marketplace. Um, and, you know, this emerges out of an entire ethics of hunting that is very different than kind of what is commonly found in European societies. It's it's not about going out and conquering an animal or kind of proving that you're able to overcome this large creature. It's actually really done out of a, a sense of dependence, right, that you actually need to enter into this relationship of hunting a whale or a walrus out of supplication, because if you're not successful, it will have really dire consequences for yourself and your family and your community. And that's that's very different than the ways in which um, in the 19th century, these commercial whaling ships from the East Coast of the United States um, arrive in the Bering Strait, um, and they are driven by um, the, the kind of set of incentives that uh, market economy places on kind of any any frontline worker in an extractive economy. So they're not paid until they return back to their home ports. Um, and then they're paid as a percentage of the whale oil um, or the walrus blubber that they've harvested when they're up north. Um, so kind of every pressure is on these whalers in order to extract the maximum amount of energy possible. And there's kind of an analogous process in the 20th century that happens with Soviet whalers um, who are under a great deal of pressure from the the sort of ideology of Soviet planning that shapes their social worlds um, to kill as many whales as possible. Um, and that puts both the capitalists and the socialists really in very direct conflict with the biological reality of being a whale, which is that, you know, bowheads grow very large. Um, they can be hundred ton animals, but it takes a really long time to get to that size. Um, and it does not actually take all that long to, to, you know, hunt out a population of whales to the point where they're kind of biologically unstable. There was a, a, a huge moment in my um, understanding of the relationship between uh, the dominant culture's economy and the destruction of much wild nature was back in, oh gosh, 16, 17 years ago. Um, somebody from Canada wrote to me and said that um, – hunters had discovered the market for bear bile in their region of British Columbia. The, the hunters had, I'm sorry, the market is in China for bear bile and hunters from their region of BC had discovered that market. And within a few years, it went from her seeing several grizzly bears every day to seeing one every few months. And it occurred to me that even something as esoteric as as a demand for bear bile. Okay, here's the point. Oh, one more thing about this, which is I rail against the dams all the time in terms of killing salmon, but the truth is the populations were collapsing before they put the dams in on the Grand Coulee because of the canning factories. And the point is that no matter how fecund any community is, it cannot support a global demand for even something as esoteric as 
spare bile. And so if you're in, I'm sorry for lecturing here when I should be asking a question, but if you're embedded in, in a, in a natural community with, with a dependence upon the continuation of that other species, you're going to treat it differently than if I'm, I'm just going to stop and let you take this anywhere you want. No, I think it's a really good point that, you know, one of the dynamics that really felt like it, it emerged in virtually every animal species I was talking about in this book is what happens when people who are very, very far away, right? A consumer who's on the East Coast of the United States who just wants to buy lamp oil to keep their house lit in, you know, 1860, or, you know, somebody who wants to buy a, uh, you know, a pool cue that has a walrus ivory um, tip to it um, in 1900. Um, that act of consumption is so uh, distant from and disarticulated from the ecosystems that are supplying the whale oil or the walrus ivory um, that essentially invisibilizes it to the consumer, right? To the person who is making the demands on that ecosystem does not have to see the impact. Um, and I think that, that that distance is something that, you know, in, in this particular history around the Bering Strait, you kind of see emerging and, and really forcefully rearranging the ecological and social relationships of this part of the world starting in the 1840s um, and, and really continues into the present, right? Because um, if anything, our kind of the, the global ways of consuming the world have only gotten more enmeshed and therefore many consumers are even more distant from where our food is grown, where our clothing is made, the fibers that go into making it. Um, and it makes ethical consumption, I think, really difficult because we simply don't know. Um, and even if you educate yourself, you can't necessarily extricate your consumption from, um, from that distance. So in, in one of my books I was writing, um, I, I learned in doing the research for it that, uh, one reason that there are still elephants on the planet is the, uh, development of early, very early forms of plastic, um, because they were using the ivory for billiard balls and various other things. And they found they didn't stop killing elephants because they cared about elephants. They stopped killing elephants because they found substitutes. And I found it extraordinary in your book. I found it really interesting in your book that one reason that there are still whales is not because not so much because industrialists, capitalists, Soviets, whomever figured, Oh gosh, we need to save whales. But instead, well, I'll just I'll just jump to the point, which is it really blew me away when you said that steel, uh, cheap steel, really helps save baleen whales. Do you remember the part I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about both oil for, for both oil in terms of whales and also uh, steel in terms of whales? That's a really good question. Um, so there's there's kind of a common narrative about whales and whaling that sounds a lot like the elephant one, right? Which is that, you know, whales were killed in order to make lamp oil. That was the kind of primary consumer product that emerged out of the, the 19th century whaling fleet in the U.S. And then petroleum products come online in 1859 or so, and then the whales were saved. Um, and the thing about whaling in the Bering Strait is that most of it takes place after 1859, um, because in the in the history of how energy sources are used, they often layer on top of each other rather than like replacing one to one. So even after you could get petroleum products, people were still killing whales for oil for quite a while, and they were also killing them for baleen, which is the the kind of filter feeding apparatus in their mouths that they strain uh, that krill out of the water with. And baleen was useful because you can essentially use it like an early plastic. Um, if you heat it up, you can bend it to a shape and it will kind of maintain that shape, but is has some give to it. So it was used in umbrella uh, stays and, and particularly to make women's corsets. Um, so many whales are killed in the you know later 19th century and in the very early years of the 20th century, primarily for their baleen and then you know to some extent for their oil. 
And it's with the invention of spring steel that the, the kind of American whaling experience ends um, because spring steel replaces uh, most of the commercial uses of baleen. At that point, there's also so few whales that it's actually extremely expensive to go out and harvest it. So um, it was the, the, the market for any whale products was extremely precarious. But I think the the important thing to remember about the story of whaling is that it's it's not just something that happened on wooden ships in the 19th century. Um, it's something that really continued into the 20th century after um, Norway kind of perfects uh, fossil fueled kind of form of industrial whaling on the high seas and is able to go after a whole new array of whale species. So nobody in the 19th century could kill a blue whale or a fin whale because they were too big. Um, but suddenly these big factory fleets could. So actually the majority of whales that human beings have killed have died in the 20th century, long after fossil fuels were on the market. And in fact died because fossil fuels were available um, to fuel these fleets. Um, so it's not, um, I, I think that sort of people who buy into the idea that markets just come up with replacements um, when things run low, um, want to talk about the ways that whales were saved by oil, but the fact is whales were very nearly destroyed um, across many species in the global oceans because of fossil fuels. Yeah, Jevons' paradox does does a lot yes. of harm. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's jump to the land now. And um, you, in that quote I, I, I gave about the reindeer and caribou, you talked about mosquitoes and you also, you know, in your, in your bio, it's, you know, you live for a while in the Yukon and I went to the Northwest territories for, I don't know, a week back in, oh gosh, 1990 or something. And, um, honestly, I spent most of it in my car because I could hear all the mosquitoes outside banging on the window and it's, I have, I have never in my life would just just talk about mosquitoes for a moment because it that is just like the krill it's it's just it's unimaginable populations. You know, I never made that comparison between mosquitoes and krill, but it's a really good one. <laughs> um, it's um it's actually difficult to explain to people who have experience of mosquitoes in a temperate area how unbelievably intense they are um, in the Arctic and subarctic. It's you know, there are stories that I've heard from um, indigenous folks in Russia and in North America talking about the ways in which, you know, they've seen caribou calves be killed because there's so many mosquitoes have actually sucked their blood, right? That the blood loss and, and allergic reaction to mosquito bites uh, can be deadly, that you see moose and bears kind of going crazy if they can't get into water to get the mosquitoes off of themselves. Um, and the same is true if you're a human being, right? I, I very much resonate with the hiding in your car. Um, I was on the, the Yukon River this summer um, doing research for my my next book, and it was a particularly bad mosquito year. Um, and, you know, you'd come to a stop and in the, on the boat, which the, the breeze on the boat kind of kept them off, but you'd be stopped for 30 seconds and there'd be eight bites on the back of your hand. Um, and it's it's partly because if if you're an insect trying to make more insects in an Arctic summer, you really have to do it very quickly all at once because the the frost free period where it's safe to be a mosquito is pretty short. Um, so they all come out at once um, and really do it with a vengeance. Um, a, a sort of trivial question, then an ecological question. The trivial question is, I have not lived up there. I was there like like I said, literally for a week and. A question I was never able to ask a local person is how do you how does a human survive this? How does anybody live there? So there's there's a couple ways to do it before the era of you know very chemically potent bug spray uh, and mosquito nets, right? Which now the way you do it is you wear sort of a bug proof suit with a net over your face and and kind of a netting coat so that you know you really try to keep yourself um, from being touched by them and you know have tents that have nets and all that good stuff. Um, but historically, one way that people would deal with it is to move to places in the summer that had a breeze. So campsites were chosen very deliberately so that they were on riverbanks where they would catch wind very regularly, or you'd move to coastal areas where there was a breeze 
Um, you'd stay out of dense forested places in the taiga. Um, you'd stay out of valleys in general because there tends to be less air movement there. Um, and you can see this in the way that people move around and you can see in the way that many animal species move around. So the, the reason that caribou and reindeer migrate is in part because they, in the summer, are trying to get to coastal regions where they can just basically catch a breeze and survive. Um, and the other thing you can do is have kind of low level smoky fires um, and the smoke helps drive the mosquitoes away. Um, which has other problems, right? It's not great for your lungs. It's not great for your eyes. Um, but often in the trade-off between great for your lungs and being sort of chewed on constantly by mosquitoes, you go for the, the not great for your lungs. And I know that there are wolves up there too, but um, I find it really interesting and extraordinary that that uh, mosquitoes, one of the ecological roles they play is similar to that of wolves in terms of like when they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, one of the things that did is really improve riparian habitat because without wolves, uh, a lot of the herbivores were getting lazy, frankly, and just, you know, sitting near the, the best land, you know, right near the stream and they were overgrazing and over browsing and you bring wolves in and the wolves basically chase the herbivores around. And it, it, blew me away when I learned that mosquitoes perform that same function because they're so tiny. Right. Yeah. They, they move these huge herds of, of reindeer for one thing, which is, is really important to keep them from overgrazing particular regions. And they're also, I mean, as awful as they are, they're very important pollinators and tend to be extremely important in aquatic food chains. So the larvae um, are, are critical to many fish species. Um, so it's, it's hard to love them, but they do have a purpose. One of the one of the things that I just love about this entire discussion and and your work is it just keeps impressing upon I hope everybody who hears it and who reads your book that the interconnectedness of nature that you know yeah they're annoying to me and you and caribou and any other warm blooded creature but um, they they are so important for fish species and which then makes it so the bears have to ask themselves, gosh, am I willing to put up with some uh, with some mosquito bites in exchange for having more food to eat? It's just yeah. nature is so profoundly. I love the line. I never can remember who said it first, but there was some ecologist in the 50s who said nature's not only more complex than we think, it's more complex than we're capable of thinking. <laughs> That's a great line hmm. to find who said that. Um. Yeah, and I, I, th I think that, you know, historically, when you look at the way that people have tried to engineer their way out of some of the inconveniences that that nature puts in our way, something like getting rid of all mosquitoes, it tends to have all sorts of these carry on impacts um, that are not what we want um, and often make it very difficult to live. And that's, again, sorry if I'm being too much of a fanboy, but again, another thing I just love about your work is that you you approach that complexity with tremendous humility and and also sort of just open-eyed and you know it's like here let's let's examine you know where the, the, these interrelationships with the recognition that we can never fully understand them i'm so glad that that's that's how you read it because that's very much um i think my experience of living in the north is one where if you're not willing to sort of approach it with humility it's very likely to come back and bite you um and so i i came to writing this history by trying to think about a way of approaching its past and really in, sort of imbue it with that feeling so we have about seven or eight minutes left but before we start the real wind down there's a question that has nothing to do with your book um but does have to do with the arctic which is many many years ago i read that the biomass of wolf spiders in the tundra is like 10 or 50 or some number times greater than the biomass of wolves. And so I've, I've never actually been able to ask somebody who knows anything about ecology from the far north this question, um, what are the wolf spiders eating? Because they, they probably can't get mosquitoes, right? Because they're down on the ground. So who are the, who are the, who are the wolf spiders eating? Do you, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? 
I do. I remember that paper. It came out, I don't know, 2018, 2019, something like that. Um, it's really fascinating because I think people tend to look at the the kind of ground level life in the Arctic as really secondary. And it turns out that it's not right. Um, wolf spiders are incredibly common. Um, and then, you know, animals like voles, it turns out, are absolutely critical to nitrogen cycling, even though they're tiny and they're not the charismatic megafauna. They're the charismatic minifauna, I guess. Um, I actually don't know what wolf spiders eat. Um, I'm not an I'm not an entomologist. Um, it might be that they're they're able to eat some. There are some kind of ground level mosquito populations, particularly because um, some of them um, operate as pollinators, so they're they're down at the low level. Um, but there's a lot of other insect life in the north. Um, I think more than we anticipate. Can you give us a a 30 second rundown of the insect life there? Um. Well, there's there's different moth species. There's a very wide array of different flies. Um, there's, you know, in addition to the wolf spiders, there's other arachnids. There are not, thank goodness, ticks that are very common. This is a major improvement over the northeast where I now live. Um, but, you know, there's there's sort of Arctic versions of a lot of the the insects that we're used to um, or the same insects, in fact. Um, are, the, are there grasshoppers or their equivalent? You know, I've never seen a grasshopper. Um, Okay. Yeah. Which, by the way, um, uh, one of the happiest days of my life was when I read somewhere that uh, spiders perform the same function on grasshoppers that wolves do on caribou or wolves do on on moose. It's it's equivalent that they they basically they drive them out of they make them not get too lazy. Right. They keep them <laughs> keep them busy. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. So how do we what I want to end with in a couple minutes, um, how people can find out more about your work and what you're working on now. But before then, how do you. What changes, how do you how do you see things? Do you think that the local communities, local human communities, how are they doing and be how are the non-human communities doing and what do you see for the future insofar as you can see through the cloudy um, crystal ball? Well, I always like to joke that um, historians are not given a crystal ball when we, when we finish our PhDs. So this, this is a very um, kind of partial understanding of where things are headed. Um, but I think that the, the, the far North, and the far south of the globe are changing due to anthropogenic climate change at a faster rate than places in temperate zones. Um, so the the kind of average is about twice as much warming is happening around the poles as this is happening um, closer to the equator. And the result of that is that communities in the Arctic and subarctic have been dealing now for several decades with what it means to be living in an unstable climate. Um, in some places, this means uh, quite radical changes to the sea ice and with that erosion, so coastal communities along the Bering Strait, some of them need to move and they need to move very urgently in the next decade or so because um, every time there's heavy weather as there was this fall in the Bering Sea, um, they sometimes can lose like 15 feet of land in the course of one storm. Um, so really dramatic uh, kind of almost geological looking processes that are happening very quickly. Um, and, you know, these are landscapes that have always been really dynamic, um, but the, the kind of speed of that dynamism is really uh, turned up to a new level. And this also is really tricky for many animal populations. Um, so caribou and reindeer, for example, are not fans of warmer weather. They're ice age adapted animals. Um, and when the climate is somewhat warmer, it, it produces more disease for them in the summer. It makes them much harder to migrate and find food in the winter. Um, so global reindeer and caribou numbers are, are way down um, and are not really showing signs of recovery in most parts of the Arctic. Um, on the other hand, bowhead whales are doing really well at the moment. Um, so it's it's often a really cloudy picture, right? We, we have a sense that for some species, climate change is um, extremely uh, detrimental um, or is driving them into new habitats. So you have phenomenon like beavers 
um, suddenly showing up way further north than they've ever lived before because the tree line is also moving north. Um, so it's good for beavers, but maybe not so good for other species. Um, and so I would say that the, you know, that the general mood in the Arctic is one of wishing things would slow down, right? Like that the, the pace of change would actually kind of diminish to a more 20th century level. And at the same time, you know, particularly these indigenous communities in the north are um, extremely used to adapting to the ways that um, both climate has changed in the past, but, but also dealing with the impacts of colonization which for the last 150 years in, in many ways have produced such dramatic ecological changes that there's un unfortunately a lot of experience in many indigenous communities with watching the ecosystem that you depend on get sort of radically retooled pretty quickly. Um, nobody wants to, you know, <laughs> have that experience or be putting it to use, um, but it it is not the case that this is the first time um, that many of these communities are dealing with a kind of ecological social upheaval. So can you, uh, how can people find out more about your work and, um, on the, I know personal crystal balls are cloudy too, but when, when can we get, when can we read another book by you? Um, so I'm, I'm currently working on a book about the, the Yukon river watershed and, and, and deep in the research process. So it'll be a couple of years before it actually exists between covers. Um, but I'm extremely grateful to be able to actually start doing research and, and go back up north after the pandemic kind of slowed that down for a couple of years. And how can people find out more about your work? Um, you can find me on the internet. Um, my website is uh, br, as in rose, demuth, uh, com, um, And that's also my Twitter handle. So you can find me at, at brdemuth um, and my Instagram handle. Um, or you can just Google Bathsheba DeMuth because it turns out there aren't very many of us out there. Um, so it's not hard to find me. And then also, you're too modest to say it, but I'll say it. They should buy your book. Thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Bathsheba DeMuth. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. Mm -hmm.